Welcome to Crescent City Crime, dear listeners. I'm Tracy. And I'm Brian. And as always, welcome to everybody who has been listening. Welcome back. If you're new here, then just welcome. Welcome, listeners. And, Brian, do you know what it is right now? It is October. Yay! And we love October. Yes, we do. And I suspect that many people who listen to this podcast also have a an affection for October. Yes, the spirit of the season. We'll be right here at this podcast. Yes. So, Brian, we are going to give the people what I assume they want, which is going to be more content for the month of October. Instead of just four episodes, we will have six episodes this month, dear listeners. Hooray! 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 Giving the people what they want today. And we also want to have just a little bit more discussion this month as well. We recently went to go see this movie called Pearl, written by Mia Goth and also starring Mia Goth. It's one of the most interesting movies I've seen in a long time, and certainly one of the best slasher movies I've ever seen. Yes, Pearl is, you could say in a cynical fashion, an all-American girl. <laughs> it's a it's a very intriguing 1918 period type of movie that is uh, centered around World War One and the influenza pandemic. Yes, that was very fascinating to me because... During the COVID years, as I'm going to now call them, we had heard a lot about the 1918 pandemic. And hey, we got to live through one of our own. Yes, we did. The The movie's not just a slasher movie. It, it is a, it is one of those. It's uh, a period piece. Yeah, that, that has a, uh, should I say, a, a human introspective. Right. Meaning the the movie asks you to basically take a look at yourself in these modern times through the prismatic lens of a farm girl from 1918. Which, I'm going to be honest, in real life, if, if I was in 1918 and I lived on a farm, it would just seem so horribly dull. So, and, and hard work. Yes, Pearl wants to be so much more than just a farm girl. Yes, and, and I would also venture a guess that a lot of farm girls at that time had some of the same dreams that Pearl had. Yes, yes. that, that uh, wouldn't come true, but find out if Pearl's dreams come true by seeing the movie. We highly recommend it. Yes, and when I was reading about the movie, I learned that Mia Goth was in a previous movie by the same director, who I am so sorry, I cannot remember who directed Pearl. Do you remember, Brian? Who's the director? T. West. Yeah, T. West, that's it. Yeah, T. West also directed this movie called X, which was a movie that came out before Pearl. And after Pearl, there's going to be another movie 
called, I'm assuming Maxine, Maxine right? But it's with Maxine triple with triple X X's. in the middle. Yeah. Yes. And after the credits finish rolling for the movie Pearl, you see a, a teaser trailer for Maxine that's made to look like it's in a VHS format. Which is quite interesting considering uh, adults, if you have a child in a room, block their ears because I'm going to say something sort of family unfriendly for like the next 30 seconds. You know, back in the day, porn was big on VHS and that was one of the things that decided between VHS and Betamaxx. Yeah, it was a format war. Right. That uh, VHS ended up uh, winning. Winning, believe it or not, despite the fact that uh, Betamax had a better picture, better quality picture. Ah, uh, yes. Well, anyway, yeah, everybody needs to go see Pearl. It was very interesting. And what, stru- what stood out about it to me, especially, was the style of the storytelling. I really love that sort of storytelling where it's one central focus. You don't have a bunch of different things going on. It's a linear story. Yes, and, and a slasher movie that was made to look like a classic picture from, I would say, what, the 1950s? Definitely had a 1950s vibe. Yeah. Hitchcockian overtones and yeah yeah Yeah, just very good yes everybody go see Pearl but don't bring your kids because it's definitely not a movie for little ones no no excellent story that really has a point the movie's very layered and you know I've, I've already seen it twice I saw it once you know using my AMC Stubbs A-list membership, and then I decided to try to surprise. I decided to tr- surprise Tracy and take her to see it. Second yes, time. And it was a great surprise. And it took me seeing it twice to understand to understand the movie better. Right. Because there there are certain scenes that have a very deep meaning to them. It's a movie that I'm definitely going to buy. Oh, I yes. will. I will spend money to buy this movie, which. Well, dear listeners, I'm going to confess that I have quite a large DVD collection. And I will probably die with these DVDs in my possession. No, nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. You're right. However, that might mean that uh, some of those movies that I have will very well may not be reprinted on DVD ever again. So that could make some of them valuable. But they're out of the plastic and they've been watched. Oh no! Uh oh. Maybe by uh, maybe what by uh, inheritance can uh, get three for ninety nine cents at GameStop or something. Yeah, too bad. My first copy of Star Wars uh, Episode Four on VHS was destroyed. Katrina. Yeah. So unopened versions or even open copies of those are selling for a pretty penny. I think I did. I see recently that somebody sold a unopened copy. Some like I think I saw that. Am I right or wrong? Do you remember seeing this? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I don't remember what it sold for, but yeah, quite, quite a bit. Was it three thousand dollars? It wasn't more than that. And I think it was at least three. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, so nobody or sorry, everybody out there when you buy a toy or a DVD, don't un, don't open it. Don't watch it, don't play with it. <laughs> Stick it in your closet, leave it there forever. Yeah, unopened Nintendo games go for quite a premium. You mean the original NES? Yes. Yeah. I definitely had one of those and of course I had Duck Hunt and Mario, Super Mario Brothers. The Godzilla game was a lot of fun. Never played the Godzilla game. Oh, I played a lot of Double Dragon though. Oh yeah, me yeah. too. Yeah. <sighs> well, are you ready to actually get into this month? Ready? Yes. You ready? Okay. So, because it is October, dear listeners, we're going to be a little bit darker, a little bit more grimmer, and we're going to have a ghost story or two because you must have ghost stories in October. Oh, yes. Yes. But tonight's story is going to strongly resemble the serial killer movies that I very much enjoyed as a teenager. Things like Scream, I Know What You Did Last Summer, that sort of thing. But unfortunately, the story is not fiction. And it is, these are real events that happened. And the people who experienced them, some of them, many of them are still alive. And many of them still live in the town that this happened in. But we're going to start in 1943, Indiana. A man named Robert Hohenberger was born. Not much is known about his early life, but a few years after his birth, his family moved to Riverside County, California. As an adult in the mid-1960s, Robert enlisted as an auxiliary police officer on a voluntary and unpaid basis. Oh, like I did. Poor guy. Uh, well, except I'm happy to say, Brian, that your life is going to turn out a lot better than his. His duties included patrolling the streets in his free time from his main job, as well as monitoring the protection of citizens' rights and public order. Using his official position, he began to carry out attacks on young girls and women. Oh, my. Yes. Oh, boy. In 1966, he was arrested on charges of raping a woman at gunpoint. He was convicted but some of the charges were later dropped after a plea deal that was made, stating that both parties had reconciled. The victim stated that Robert had made amends with her, and he received a minor sentence of two years in prison. And upon his release, he left Riverside County and moved to Orange County. And, Brian, do you think he straightened up and flew right and... His life was wonderful after no, that. No, no. Sexual no. predators uh, continue on with a pattern of behavior. That they do. Their, their, need, their needs are never satisfied. Never. So in 1971, Robert Hohenberger was again arrested in Laguna Beach for kidnapping two girls at gunpoint. He was found guilty and sentenced to life imprisonment, but with a possibility of parole after six months. Explain that to us, Brian. Why would they sentence somebody to life in prison and then give them the possibility of parole after just six months? Simply because the that law allowed it. Mm. Wow. Wow. That, the, that's sad. Because, of course, the penalty phase... 
for, uh, you know, for a trial, that's where a judge or a jury gets to consider the circumstances. Mm. You know, after you're found, after you're found guilty. Well, in this case, he was not paroled after six months. He was in San Quentin State Prison. And by 1974, he established himself as a model prisoner and was transferred to a cell with less security. But on April the 12th, 1974, guess what happens? He escapes. He escapes. You are correct. Yeah. Yeah, of course. He was a model prisoner because he didn't have any little girls to victimize in jail. Oh, but he immediately victimized somebody after. Of course. He kidnapped a 20-year-old man named Richard Dubois and his wife, Victoria, and forced them to take him to, to Modesto, where a friend of his lived. Modesto. Well, which uh, more infamously in more recent years is where Lacey and Scott Peterson lived. So for, for those following at home, if you're familiar with the Lacey Peterson case, then Modesto is going to ring bells for you. But this is not Lacey and Scott Peterson. It's not about this today. However, Robert was unable to locate the house. He demanded the hostages take him to Los Banos while refueling a car at a gas station next to the I-5. Richard and Victoria managed to flee and they reported the incident to the authorities. Hohenberger was captured a few hours later and ex extradited to Marin County where he was found guilty of escaping from, de from detention. Then, after all that, two kidnappings an escape from prison. He was paroled in August of 1977. Wow. He returned to Riverside County where he started to commit crimes again. Yeah. Yes. He just didn't spend enough time behind bars to, to rethink things and try to change as if, as if that's going to happen with the sexual predator. Unfortunately, you're right, because in October of that year, he abducted a girl from Palm Desert, and he beat and raped her. She survived and reported the attack to the police. And in the following months, the victim identified Robert Hohenberger as her attacker. As a result of her identification, Robert Hohenberger was put on a national wanted list. And upon learning this... Robert fled California in January of 1978, succeeding in evading capture by the California state authorities. We're going to pause here for a quick ad break. <coughs> so, Brian, where do you think Robert Hohenberger wound up going? Back to prison? Nope. Unfortunately, he came to Louisiana. Oh, yes, of course. I was waiting to hear a Louisiana connection there. Because I realized this wasn't quite Louisiana when I heard county. That's very true. But he did not come to New Orleans. Instead, he went to the small town of Bayou Vista, which is in St. Mary Parish. And he adopted the pseudonym Frank Henry Green. Huh. If you look at a map of Louisiana... New Orleans is on the eastern bend of the Mississippi River. 
and the route from New Orleans to Bayou Vista takes you more towards coastal Louisiana. And this section of Louisiana consists of a cluster of small towns that are close to the Gulf of Mexico. And right next to Bayou Vista is Morgan City. And this area is about 90 minutes away from New Orleans. This is a place that I've very rarely been to in my in my life. What about you? Yeah, don't really recall Morgan much of anything about Morgan City. In Bayou Vista, Robert Hohenberger worked for a welding equipment supply company, but he frequented Morgan City. It was during this time that teenagers started disappearing in Morgan City, Louisiana. And it is called Morgan City, but y'all, it's not really a city. It's a, it, it, it's, a ta- it's a city that's smaller than New Orleans, and New Orleans is not a very large city. This is a, the sort of place where everybody knows everybody. This is a community that is very involved with each other. So when teenagers go missing, people definitely notice, and they notice on, on a scale of a whole city. They may have noticed that it started when uh, this guy showed up as well. Well, the first to go missing was 16-year-old Mary Lee Roderman. She disappeared on March 2, 1978, while she was going to a, a store to shop. And a few hours after her disappearance, her parents were called by the kidnapper, who demanded $5,000 in ransom. To back his claims, the man allowed Mary to make a call to her parents, during which the girl confirmed that she had been abducted. The Rotermans turned to the police, but after that, no trace of either Mary or her kidnapper was ever found. On April the 27th, 19-year-old Bridget Cantrell Sons and 17-year-old Gordon Mark Canella went missing following a robbery at a store in Morgan City. While inspecting the premises, the police found the missing girl's handbag as well as an unfinished cigarette. A car and a pack of cigarettes that belonged to the girl were found in the parking lot. On May the 11th, 15-year-old Judy Adams and 14-year-old Bertha Gould went missing after attending a fair near near the Central Catholic High School in Morgan City. Initially, both girls were considered runaways, but further investigation established that before disappearing, they had gotten into a car driven by an unfamiliar white man. After checking vehicle registrations in the area, the police identified Frank Green, but his real identity was revealed following an examination of his fingerprints. Uh, Okay, so the, the, the jig was up. They found out that Frank Green was, in fact, Robert Hohenberger. Yeah, fingerprints are the key to an accurate identification of someone. But the fingerprints have to be exact. Like, they can get a partial match, but it, you really need to have it. How many, do you know how many points it is? It's like so many points on the finger. Is it it's like a 10-point match or something like that? Is that right? I believe so. Yeah. So that's, and that needs to be like a finger or a thumb pressed on something fully. Well, right. Well, it's going to be when your fingerprints are taken versus what's on file 
like uh, in my case, my fingerprints are on file because of you know background check for security guard for police work for United States Marine Corps. Right. Uh, in his case, it's because he's gone to jail. Exactly. You know, been been, been, ar- been arrested. During the investigation, the police interrogated Hohenberger's neighbor, 38-year-old Sidney Harris, who had contacted Robert and told him that the police were at his house. You believe that? You believe that, Brian? His, His neighbor decided to warn Robert that the police were looking for him. Apparently, he didn't know what it was about. Apparently not. Um... The police, so this gave Robert an opportunity to flee. And his neighbor, Sidney Harris, was subsequently arrested and charged with harboring a fugitive. And Robert Hohenberger had once again slipped away and he became the subject of a national manhunt. But it would not be too long after that, on May the 26th, that the bodies of Bridget Cantrell's sons and Judy Adams were found in a septic tank. Weights had been secured to their bodies, and there was evidence of abuse and strangulation. And that septic tank was on the property of the welding company that Hohenberger worked at. Uh, yeah, that that's and that's not too unusual. There have been other murders where people were dumped in a septic tank. Yeah. That's that, That's pretty gruesome. Now, the next day in a field outside of the city, Gordon Canella's body was found. A rope had been tied around his neck, leaving a strangulation mark. Police then conducted a massive search in, in an attempt to locate Mary Lee Roderman and Bertha Gould. But their search was unsuccessful. They've never found out what happened to Mary or Bertha to this day. That's sad. Very, very, very sad. Yes, it's always the, the, the ones that are never found that are haunting. On May the 31st, Robert Hohenberger was found in Tacoma, Washington, after he tried to sell a stolen car. During an attempted arrest by four plainclothes law enforcement officers, he fiercely resisted. He pulled out a 22 caliber pistol and shot himself in the head. He was taken to the St. Joseph Medical Center where he underwent brain surgery, but on the same day he passed away a few hours after the surgery due to complications, and the incident was subsequently ruled as a suicide. While investigating Hohenberger's activities, it was established that he had been at Tacoma since May the 23rd using the alias of Frank Harris to look for work. During a search of his rented apartment, a 12-gauge shotgun and several knives were found. In the aftermath of the death of their daughter, the Rotermans relocated to Houston, Texas. Her older brother, Doug, recently spoke about the uncertainty and fear that gripped St. Mary Parish in 1978. Doug was 17 at the time, and he said that everybody was pretty much afraid to go out in the evenings. For three or four months, it was just sheer terror. A St. Mary Parish detective named Duval Arthur said that Robert Hohenberger had been a policeman and he knew what it took to get control of someone. He also said that 
that Hohenberger was not one of those who would hide to do what he did. It was always in public like gas stations or shopping centers. The abductions always took place on Thursday evenings just after dark in public. Doug Roderman had also said that we didn't want him to die. We had a lot of unanswered questions, like what he did with my sister. And that is the story of Robert Hohenberger and how he managed to terrorize St. Mary Parish for, uh, you know, a, a few months. And he ultimately died without answering any questions. Which isn't always the case, because many times when these types of people get caught, they... You know, they enjoy sharing their wicked fascinations oh, yes. with, 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 with other people. But apparently this, this character enjoyed using knives to, to maim and murder people, which is a, um, a disturbing trend. Is there, there are some uh, criminals who are genuine slashers. Because they enjoy using knives like that 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 pair that recently went on a stabbing spree. In Canada, in, right? In in Canada. I mean those for them it's it's no fun unless they're literally slashing people. Oh. So apparently it, it just doesn't take much. It doesn't take much for them. All they need are are knives. Or any kind of weapon, and as we, as many people have seen or heard about, you know the infamous prison shivs. You know, you can make a, a something sharp out of a lot of things. Yeah, man, mankind has used edged weapons since the Stone Age. They have. That's yeah, very true. Ever since man learned how to sharpen pieces of stone. So, in the end, the, the most evil of people will always find a way to harm people, regardless of what the law is or what the restrictions are. And at the time that you know, he shot himself in the head with that twenty-two pistol, that was a time in this country where there were lots of uh, cheap imported twenty-two caliber revolvers. Namely, uh, from from Germany, like one company called like RG, for example, and eventually the imports of these cheap twenty-two revolvers were were banned, and violent criminals uh, were using cheap thirty-eight calibers and nine millimeters instead, and fatalities increased mm. from these shootings because. You know, the supply of these cheap twenty-two caliber revolvers had, had dried up pretty much. I see. Okay. Yeah. So an example of what rest, you know, restricting certain products too tightly can can do. It, it can make things worse, you know. Yes, and I know that um, and you know, another reason why I wanted to tell the story today was I had never heard of this until again, you know, until I started looking into things for the podcast back when I was laying all the groundwork. 
and I was like, whoa, this is insane to me that this is not a little bit more widely known, and at least in our state. I, I had to dig for this information, you know? Yeah, real-life slashers are very wicked and evil and scary individuals. Yes. Who can't be reasoned with because you're, they're not going to let you get between them and their pleasure. Right. So you you have to you have to literally fight for your life. Yes, and it's unfortunate though that he probably understood how to how to get people to trust him as well. You know, if you're an officer of the law, part of your job is that you have to get people to trust you. Yes. Okay. So he was able to fool young people who you know, must probably you know quite you know innocent like they're in that that kind of stage of an innocence in their life where they're you know they they're quite, they're looking up to adults to lead them, and this person took advantage of that in the worst way possible. Yeah, being an ex police officer, he knew how to behave in such a fashion. Yeah, and he was taking advantage of just how trusting young people were in that small community. Yes. It just goes to show you that no matter what town you live in, you can't trust strangers. No, you really can't trust strangers, and sometimes you can't trust your own family. Yes, and, and your, your proverbial sick psychopaths and sociopaths, they're in every city in the entire world. That they are. And they're all looking to be empowered. Right. In some kind of way, they, they want power. Well, everybody wants power. It just depends upon how you choose to exercise power. I like to think of myself as a creative person. So the greatest exercise of my power is getting to create things. I can paint something. I can record something. And ultimately, I'm not hurting anybody to do it. I'm not stepping on anybody's neck. I'm not slashing people's throats. I'm creating something. Right. right. And you're not manipulating other people to do to do terrible things, you know. No, no, right. that that's gonna be in the, in the next phase of my life. <laughs> in, in the sixties. Like when when I hit sixty years old, I'm gonna have a paint army. Yeah. I'm yeah. gonna manipulate young people into picking up paintbrushes and painting canvases. Groovy. <laughs> yes doesn't that sound scary a paintbrush army uh, Brian do you have anything else to add yes beware of strangers who enjoy uh, their knives too much and also you know be very aware and this is everybody a police officer wants you to go someplace and they're not arresting you, don't get in the car. You don't have to. Unless you're under arrest, you do not have to go anywhere with a cop. Yeah, keep in mind that if if someone who is pretending to be an officer of law or is an officer of the law is in effect engaging in an unlawful arrest, okay, like one example of an unlawful arrest is when someone who appears to be 
what what say appears to be a police officer is just tries to get you into a car and has absolutely no reason to stop you or talk to you and they're not even telling you why they're stopping or talking to you and they're not asking for any documents they're not asking for your name to run your name on a on a radio with, or if they have no probable cause yes right? exactly exactly yeah it's it's uh and if the person really is an officer of the law then it, it's an unlawful arrest and you do have the right to resist an unlawful arrest but if you do you better make sure that you understand what what is going on you better make sure it really is an unlawful arrest because chances are you may have to defend it in court right and you can also you know in, in this day and age we have these wonderful devices called smartphones and a smartphone is, is it's just such a great thing to have if you need to verify somebody's information uh, if it, like for example if you are at your house and somebody knocks on the door and identifies themselves as a police officer you ask for their badge number and you call the police station right if you think you're being pulled over by a proverbial blue light bandit someone who may not be a cop or maybe abusing their power feel free to drive to the nearest police station or a public for this, place for this for this encounter although if you, if you think it's it's an unlawful if it, it's an unlawful stop or someone posing as a police officer the proverbial 112 impersonating an officer the best thing to do is to drive to any police station even if it's a campus police station yeah yeah any kind of police station the park police station sheriff's department anybody yeah any 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 police any police precinct because they can all check on each other that's right and they and they will like they they don't like police officers i'm sorry they don't police officers do do not like people imitating them no they do not no, like that no the blue white band that you have to watch out for those types and if, if you have to drive a, a good distance to a police station then go ahead and call 911 and let them know that you're being followed by someone you're not who is uh, seems to might be a police officer but you don't know if it's safe and that you're on your way to a police station yeah and this actually reminds me of something that you told me uh the more police officers that there are to seem typically the better because there's less chance of a cover-up so if you are by yourself on the street at night driving a car and you see a police officer trying to pull you over the more officers involved the better let let them call in other officers because that would prove that they're a real cop at the very least oh yes yes every instance of someone impersonating a police <clears throat> officer it's going to be typically one person maybe two but usually just just one person it is usually just one person that's true yeah yeah yes <sighs> all right so dear listeners thank you so much for tuning into this episode make sure that you tell your friends about us and of course tell your enemies yes definitely tell your enemies in fact scream it at them scream at them listen to crescent city crime and do it in your spookiest voice possible
listen to Crescent City Crime. <laughs> so the next episode is going to be a bonus content episode. It's going to be available on Tuesday, October the 11th. We're going to have a ghost story for you. So thank you for listening and be sure to subscribe to Crescent City Crime so you don't miss an episode in the future because that would be the scariest thing of all. All right, everybody, remember, be safe, be kind. Remember that we're all human beings and do not park next to vans. And if you're going to go trick-or-treating, make sure to share your candy. (laughs) No, don't share your candy. Be selfish. Keep it for yourself. Yeah, it only happens once a year. (laughs) (laughs) Free candy day, just once a year. The next day, half-price candy day for adults, of course. For adults, yes. Yes. And if it's dark, it's dangerous, and you don't feel safe, don't be there in the first place. And if you're speaking to law enforcement in an official capacity, and you are not the victim or the witness to a crime, lawyer up. 